this lesson this morning will be a basically a, a lesson on the continuation of repentance in the believer's life. And I, what I want you to understand, I think, just up front before I even get into anything, is repentance isn't a one-time thing. Repentance is the outworking of regeneration. It's the ongoing work of redemption in the Christian's life. It's our response to our sin, and it's our response and our reliance upon God and response to His mercy that changes us continually, that conforms us to the image of His Son. We're driven to be repenters. And so when you look at at Jonah chapter 2, you never see the word repentance just spelled out in simple letters there. But you see the active, ongoing work of God in Jonah's heart, even though he's in rebellion. And you see the act of repentance being wrought in the heart of Jonah. And it comes in stages, just like in your life and my life. I mean, very few times do I, or, or you either, I would imagine, just wake up and go, oh, that was the most horrible thing I've ever done. I'm going to now turn from my sin, and now I'm going to turn in reliance upon God, and I'm going to trust in all His graces and power to keep me from that sin, and I'm done. It doesn't usually happen that quickly. God in His mercy usually has to put us under the distress of our sin before we realize He is there, ordaining all things for our good. And so then as we see our sin and we see the weight of that sin and we see what that sin is doing to us and what it does to our witness, we begin to turn from our sin and trust in God's provisions, God's grace. That's what's happening, I think, in Jonah's story. But last week, we just began the story. And as as I said last week, verse 17 of chapter 1 is just a place that we stop and have to focus our attention for a moment before we continue on with Jonah on this journey. There was a a divine pause in the story of Jonah there in 117 when it says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What God does here in this divine pause is He shows us a man like ourselves, and He shows us how He redeems sinners like us as well. We see a man here sinking under the weight of his own sin and disobedience. Yet even in that horrible state, God is making provision for him to rescue him and preserve him, just as He did for us in Christ Jesus. Jonah's divine rescue that we see in 117 was really just a picture of how God's Son saves sinners continually, how He preserves us eternally. Jonah's rescue was a foreshadow of the greater rescue that was appointed by God when he sent his son into the world to become like us and to take our place on the cross and to be placed into death in our place, in the grave in our place, and then rise victorious for us. That is what Jonah's experience points us to. Jonah's experience in 117 teaches us an important lesson not only about the Savior's redeeming work and God's preserving work, but also God's sanctifying work. Because 117 actually comes along and is the place we stop and look and see what God has done. And then in 2, 1 through 9, we see the experience of Jonah expounded. We, we start with Jonah in the ship. We go into the water with him in 117. And we see that God makes a way to rescue and preserve him. 
And then in chapter 2, God expands this and shows us what's really going on inside the water and inside the great fish. Jonah's experience is expounded in detail in this passage 1 through 9. Let's read through this this morning together as a church. Jonah 2, 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple or toward your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This morning, we're going to focus in on verses 1 through 3. But just so you understand something, this is the, the stage that God has displayed His mercy to us on. It comes in three stages. The one is the stage of this underwater event here, where He's plunged underneath God's discipline. And we see what He does in verses 1 through 3 immediately when God places Him there. Then in verses 4 through 7, we actually get to hear what Jonah prayed while he was there. That's the actual prayer that we see in 4 through 7. And then basically 8 through 9 is basically the testimony of what God did according to his mercy as Jonah was in that place of discipline and sanctification. This is how Jonah responded when he came forth in verse 10. Salvation is of the Lord. He was experiencing salvation all the while he was in that great fish. Because salvation is not just the rescue from sin. It's the preservation from sin. It's the sanctifying work of God in the heart of the believer. Jonah never really directly asks God to get him out of this place of discipline. He settles in and says, I am here, but I want you to preserve me. I need you. I wanted to be distant from you, but now under your hand of discipline, I recognize I need you. So that's going on here. And in verses 1 through 3, we see how, this would be your only point this morning, I think, how the distress of sin changes our condition and our disposition. How the distress of sin, you could say, leads us to repentance. The distress of sin in our life, whether it's because of what we have done or because of sin around us in the world, because it comes both ways. It doesn't just come because of our own sin. Sometimes the distress of sin is something we feel because of the sin of others, the sin of this unredeemed world around us. 
But understand that it is supposed to change us. It moves us from one condition to another, and it changes our disposition, our perspective, our actions, our reactions. Where you turn when you are going through distress reveals God's sanctifying work in your heart. Are you turning to Him? Are you trusting in your ability to cover your sin or your ability to overcome difficulties through your own efforts? Jonah couldn't do any of that. Jonah's placed in a, in a position where he can't do anything but turn to God, which is where he should have been from the beginning. If you'll notice, Jonah never prays in this book until we come to chapter 2. He should have prayed at the beginning, trusting in God's direction. He had received a divine illumination of what God called him to do. He should have prayed about that and rejoiced in it, but instead he ran from it. And now God placed him in a place where he cannot run any longer to change his condition and change his disposition. What I, what I mean by that? type of this type of change is this have you ever been caught in sin not just by your own conscience but caught by someone else in sin and you felt thankfulness for it because immediately it brought you back to a place of relying on god's grace trusting in the work of christ and you rejoiced over being caught in that sin Because once you were caught in that sin, you were reminded you have been forgiven. God has made a way to preserve you forever in Christ, but you must repent. You should respond to that. Your disposition changes. I wanted to give you an illustration of that this morning. And I have to give you one from my own personal experience, which I rarely like to do. But I'll give it to you because it's a negative experience. I drive fast. And it's a sin. God deals with me every time I get in the car about this. And I think it's an, or a special sin uh, that God wants to change in my life. He wants to conform me to trust in His sovereignty to get me where I'm supposed to be on time rather than my own ability. But there's been many a time when I've passed a highway patrol when I'm speeding. And He's done this, pointed that finger, and sometimes He's turned on the light. And he's pulled me over. And immediately, I am relying on God. There's a change in my disposition. I am regretting my sin. I am turning from that thing that was harming me, going to harm me. And then that highway patrolman comes alongside and says, I'm not going to give you a ticket this time. And there is great rejoicing. And there should be transformation. And repentance that moves me away from continuing on in speeding. That's what I'm talking about here. When when I go through a time of distress, when you go through a time of distress because of your sin, that condition that you're in is the condition you placed yourself in, okay? But God will use that in your life, in His sovereignty, to change your disposition about sin and conform you to the image of His Son. Just, just understand, in Jonah's life, we see this, and we see this in our life. Sin, as Nate pointed out a few weeks ago, works in God's sovereignty sinlessly in the saint's life. God, God will use even what we get ourselves into because of our own disobedience to bring us to a place of repentance and reliance upon God. That's what happens to Jonah. If you look at Jonah 2.1, what you see is a summary statement of what's going on in Jonah's heart and Jonah's situation or Jonah's condition is kind of revealed here in a summary way in verse 1. And this is just a Hebrew way of writing. 
Verse 1 is just to kind of give you a, okay, here's a, here's a change of thought from verse 17. Here's a summary of what I'm going to say in the rest of this passage here. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. That's just a big picture. We know that Jonah didn't begin praying when he just got into the fish. We see in this text this morning, he was praying when he went into the deep. When he was being weighed down by his sin in the ocean. He begins to call out, and you think about it, that makes sense. I mean, he's plunged into the water, he's drowning. He is calling upon the only one who can save him, rescue him, keep him, preserve him. He's calling upon God. He begins to do that immediately. We'll see that. But I I just want to point out how there is a change in his condition already here. Even in the summary statement. If you think about Jonah's condition for a minute, you remember... That in one nine, look over at one nine. Jonah makes a profession or a confession, and you can see a a, a transformation or a change from verse nine to verse one of chapter two has taken place. Something's changed in this man, and it's very subtle. You don't notice it at first glance, but pay close attention to what it says in one nine. Jonah said to the sailors, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. When Jonah was in rebellion, he refers to God as the God of the world. He doesn't refer to God as my God, my Lord. Look what happens in 2.1. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. There's a transformation. That transformation took place because he was placed under the weight of his sin. He felt the distress of sin. And now he recognized he needed to rely on his God, not the God. Jonah had wanted to distance himself from the God. Now he wants to draw near to God, his God. And that's, that's the way it is when we sin, isn't it? When you're, when you're in a pattern of sin that you know is sin, you are willfully choosing to follow a path that is disobedient to God's word, you, you distance yourself from God. You distance yourself from God's people. You distance yourself from reading God's word. And when people ask you about who you are, you may say, I am a Christian. I follow the God of the Bible. But you don't say, I am a Christian and I follow my God the Lord Jesus. Sin has a way of dividing us and pushing us away from that tight relationship we are to have with our God, our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who rescues sinners. I mean, Jonah Jonah should have been rejoicing at chapter 1 and verse 1 when God came to him and gave him a message. But Jonah doesn't really rejoice until we get into chapter 2 and he's placed under distress. And he recognizes It's not just Nineveh who needs mercy. It's this rebellious prophet who needs the mercy of God as well. Now look in Jonah 2. 2, And here's where we see the the distress. That distress is meant to change our condition and our disposition here. He says in this passage, in Jonah 2.2, this is when basically Jonah begins to pray. And what I believe as as you read through this text, you'll see is he is praying as he is being plunged into 
this sea, the sea that would produce repentance in him. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. The distress was due to his sin. Okay? He was distressed due to sin, and he calls out. When do you think he recognized that he was in distress? It wasn't when he sank to the bottom. It's as he's going in and going down for the last time, and the, the, the water is surrounding him, and he has no hope. He doesn't call upon his legalistic religion to save him. You know, what's amazing is when you read through this passage, and we'll get to it eventually, when it comes down to the end, Jonah is stripped of all legalism, all ritual, all religion. He is in this tomb. He is in this watery grave that God had made to preserve him. And there he offers a sacrifice, and it wasn't of his own doing. It was the work of God that was bringing it to, to pass in his heart. And it was a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It wasn't a blood sacrifice, but it sort of pointed to another sacrifice. It, the sacrifice that one would give in our place. So we could also cry out in thanksgiving when we go down into sin, knowing that we have been preserved by God's grace. Under the distress of sin, Jonah undergoes a change in his condition and his disposition. In verse 2, you, you see that Jonah realizes the weight of his sin. That's what's going on there. This is where repentance begins. Repentance starts after regeneration. It's a result of regeneration. After you've been born again, there becomes an awareness of your sin. And at times, at times, God will let us wander into sin to bring us to this point of recognition that we need to rely on Him to get us through the Christian life, not just into the Christian life. Jonah realizes here, though, in verse 2, there is a weight attached to his sin. Sin is leading him to death. The wages of sin is death. Jonah realizes that. And so what does he do? This is the most glorious part of this. And what do you do? When, When you are hit with the wages of sin, when you are hit with the reality of sin in your life, what do you do? Do you run from God or do you rejoice in what God has done to save you and preserve you? Just think about this. If you're a Christian and you've sinned today, and you have, you can turn to God no matter how bad you have been. And He will hear you when you cry out. Not because of your works, not because of anything you have done, not because you are lovely. It's because God is a God of mercy. And He has made a provision for sinners that will preserve us eternally. But we wouldn't know that, and Jonah wouldn't know that, Unless Jonah's heart was preserved by God's word. See, God's word is what illuminates these truths. See, see, we know that we can come to God when we sin. And we know that he'll hear us when we cry out. But that also doesn't teach us that we can rejoice in sin because grace abounds. Because God's word teaches us that God hates our sin. And he even did something to deal with our sin that was very tragic. He placed them on his son. So that we would turn and rejoice in the work that God has accomplished for us. But that comes from a a knowledge of the revelation of God's grace that's given to us in Scripture. Jonah's disposition here, I truly believe, because of reading through this passage, there are multiple references to the Psalms. I truly believe that Jonah's disposition is transformed because he is relying on God's word, God's promises. 
Jonah brings forth in this psalm many, many psalms in this prayer. This prayer is actually a psalm. He brings forth many psalms, though, of David, of the psalmist. And he quotes them liberally. There's no flashlight in this water with him. There is no flashlight in this tomb, in this great fish with him. He is relying on what God has planted deeply within him to bring him comfort and change his attitude change him and conform him eventually to be a messenger of God as he was commanded to initially. This prayer is replete with quotes from the Psalms. I want to give you some of those. In this prayer, you can see references to Psalm 18. Turn there with me. Psalm 18 is referred to by Jonah. Can't you just imagine? Maybe you can imagine because you've been there like Jonah in the midst of suffering, in the midst of being weighed down by your sins. And God in His grace speaks to your heart through His Word and reminds you of the truth that Christ came to save you, to redeem you from the pit, to draw you out and to give you new life. See, I think anytime we go through suffering, we need to see it as that gift from God to do this in our life, to draw upon Him for strength, to go to His Word to find confidence to face the trials ahead of us. In 18.4, it says, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. And then it says this in verse 6, In my distress, this is what Jonah's remembering, I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and the cry to him, my cry to him, reached his ears. Jonah had been distanced because of his sin, but Jonah was the one doing the distancing. He was running from God. God all the while was running after him. God would redeem him from this pit. But Jonah was being called on to recognize God's work in his life and his need of mercy, just like the Ninevites. See, ultimately, that's what God's doing in Jonah. He is doing a miracle in that watery tomb. He is transforming a hard-hearted minister into a minister of mercy because he's now needing God's mercy, just like the pagans and the unbelievers around him. We need to remember that. What we've been given in Christ is given for that purpose so that we can proclaim it to the nations. We have been given much grace so that we can share that grace with others. And sometimes when we go through suffering, that's what we're reminded of, what God has done to redeem us from the pit. And that should motivate us to do ministry, to go into the world. But we need to hide God's word in our heart to equip us to do that. Look at Psalm 31. This is also found in Jonah's prayer. Psalm 31, 22. Look what it says. I had said in my alarm... I am cut off from your sight. And this is the way Jonah would have felt. For the Jew, being cast into the sea would have been basically the, the testimony of God's hatred for you, God's separation from you. He is separating you into death, into Sheol, the grave, hell. I am cut off from your sight. Then he says, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. So this is the great work of change is going on in Jonah's heart. Jonah did not want to help anyone, and now he's in a position where he needs God's help in everything. 
God is doing this in his heart to conform him to be a minister of mercy to others. Whenever you're facing troubles in life, is that where you turn? Do you turn to God? Are you relying on the promises of God? Are you relying on God not only to get you out of sin, but to change you as you go through the repentance of sin? See, there's, there's a desire in the Christian's life to reject our sin, though we struggle with it at times. But the more we see what God has done to provide sanctification for us and redemption for us, the less we love our sin and the more we cling to Christ. I mean, you, you cannot, and I've said this here before many times, said it Wednesday night, we cannot, we cannot entertain hateful, lustful, evil, disobedient thoughts, and at the same time entertain thoughts of Jesus on the cross in our place. Grace drives us to obedience. Grace drives us not to guilt. Guilt drives us inward. Grace drives us upward to God. We call upon Him. But we would not know to do that if we didn't know His Word, if it was not hidden down deep in us. No matter how deep Jonah went, God's Word was in him and with him. The same way with us. No matter what you go through, no matter the struggle you face, God has not separated Himself from you. He is there with you. His Word abides in you. And this distress works for good in us. The distress of sin caused Jonah to rely on God's Word. He relied on the promises of God to change him. Now look at verse 2 again. What's happening here is Jonah, inside the water, inside the fish eventually, is being changed himself from the inside out. But he has to face a harsh reality to do this. He says here in verse 2, he calls out to the Lord out of his distress. He calls out because he is in distress because of his disobedience. Now, I was thinking about another man who was like that in the Bible. I was thinking about another man who, like Jonah, thought he was serving God faithfully. But in reality, he was running from God's commands completely. This man's name was Saul. And until Saul suffered distress under his sin, he could not see that he needed to rely on God to change him. But when God knocks him down on the road to Damascus and blinds him, then Paul receives true sight. He sees that his ministry is useless. He would call it scubalon. It is waste compared to knowing Christ. And so he relies upon Christ. And out of his distress, he calls, Lord! And Jesus answers him. And Jesus brings him out of the darkness and into the light. Now, those two illustrations, one of Jonah, one of Paul, those are given to us to give us hope. When we are like them, when we are in disobedience, we, we do not have to be afraid to call upon God. Sometimes we struggle with praying when we're in sin, don't we? We excuse prayer as something that God would not be pleased with because we are in disobedience. So we avoid prayer, the very gift that God gives us to communicate our neediness. And in reality... The distress of sin should drive us to our knees so we can do nothing but look to the one who made provision for us, the Lord Jesus. 
There we will find hope. He will hear us. He will answer us according to our need. That's what happens with Jonah. It says, and God answered him. And that's just amazing. This should just rock the Jews that read this. He has been disobedient. Now he is calling on God as if he has a right to. And he does because God has set his covenant love on Jonah. And he's done that with you as well if you're a believer. I don't think Jonah called out to God out of disrespect. He calls out to God out of fear, reverence. Oh God, I'm dying here. Help me. He's desperate. This is where repentance starts. Repentance starts with a reliance on God, turning to God and turning from sin. We see the seed form of that happening here. Out of the belly of Sheol, hell, the grave, the pit. It says, and this doesn't do justice in English. It says, I cried and you heard my voice. That's not what it says in the Hebrew. Out of the belly of Sheol, I screamed and you heard my voice. Now, that hearing of Jonah's voice wasn't just that God heard the audible cry. No, he heard what was going on in Jonah's heart because God himself was bringing that about. God was sanctifying this sinning saint. Jonah understood what he meant when he said the belly of Sheol. Sheol was the place of the dead to the Jew. It's a place that you would be separated from God due to your sin. And what Jonah's saying is, I, I, I'm finally getting what I asked for and I don't want it. I feel abandoned by God. I feel like I'm in the dwelling place of the cursed. He is frightened. He's screaming. Just think about it. Put yourself there. Imagine you are in the fish, in the darkness, covered in the stench of death, immersed in weeds and dead carcasses. You don't know where you are, but you know you're alive. And you know as long as you have breath, you can call upon your God. And that's what he's doing. He felt like he was separated. And he hated it. This was was God's gift. He had wanted to be separated from God. And God says, really? Okay. Taste this. And see what you think. And when he tasted what separation felt like, he screams. We should be that way. I should be that way. When I see what my sin does between me and my God, I should scream. I should pour my heart out to God in repentance and thankfulness and reliance upon His grace. In the Old Testament, Sheol was a place described as full of divine punishment. That's where Jonah thought he was. But I want you to understand something. There is no punishment for the saint in the future. There is no punishment for us now. There may be discipline. There is rebuke. But it is not penal punishment. That punishment was paid by another. So Jonah was mistaken here. He was not being punished by God. He was being loved by God, disciplined by God. Look at Numbers 16. This would be the the Hebrew understanding of the word Sheol, what it was meant for. Numbers 16, 26. This is in the rebellion of Korah. 
as he is traveling with the children of Israel and under the leadership of Moses. And Korah rebels against God's leadership and God's man here. And look at 1626, what it says. And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow, and let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it, and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also and Aaron each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Against them means in rebellion against them. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abraham came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. Look at the cost of sin and rebellion here. And the unbelieving hearts of these men, by the way. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, and the Lord has not sent me... But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And so it happens. God causes the earth to open up and swallow these sinners up. And they went to the place of the damned, the dead, the cursed by God under God's punishment. This is where Jonah feels like he is at. Because that's what sin will do to us. Sin will cause us to feel as if we are with the damned. But listen, believers, you have been redeemed from that pit. That is not your appointment. That is not the purpose in the distress that you're suffering under. It is to bring you back from the pit to rejoice in the mercy of the God who sent His Son to rescue you. The distress of sin caused Jonah to feel like he was abandoned. But in reality, he wasn't. But there was another one who was abandoned. Completely. The Lord Jesus. Not because of his sin, but because of our sin. But in his abandonment, we find that we are drawn near to God. Not separated from God. But drawn near to the throne of grace at the time of our greatest need. Psalm 32. Look with me at that. Psalm 32, I think, speaks about the the feeling that Jonah had, the feeling that we have when we are in sin. And then it speaks about what we should do as a result of this feeling. It speaks about relief from sin and reliance on God. Again, I think this psalm actually speaks about 
what repentance should look like in the heart of the child of God. Recognize we sin. And in the immediate sense that we recognize it, we should not rely on ourselves to keep ourselves out of sin, lest we become legalists. We rely on God who redeems us. Look what it says, 32.3. For while I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now, what he's meaning here is, when I didn't confess or come into alignment with God about my sinful condition, I had psychosomatic symptoms. And you will too. Do you understand what that means? If you're not willing to confess what you're doing is an offense to God according to His Word, God will allow your flesh to rot, to cause you misery. You will have ulcers. You will have headaches. You will have migraines. You will have backaches. You will be in complete torment at times under God's grace so that you would confess and repent and trust in Him. I mean, think of, God is the God who is sovereign not only over our soul, right? I mean, what I just said, maybe you don't believe me, but, you know, I'm not saying every headache and, and every backache is a result of sin, although we are fallen creatures and we are falling apart. But God is sovereign over our hearts. And what's going on in our heart will affect the way our flesh lives. When you hide sin, it makes you miserable. And you find release from that sin in repentance. And then you find joy and rejoicing. That's what happens to the psalmist. For day and night, he says, God's hand, notice that God's hand was heavy upon me. He says, basically, when I wasn't repenting, you were distressing me. You were pushing down hard on me. What's he doing when he does that? He is squeezing sin out of us. He is causing us to rely on his strength, not our own. My strength was dried up as by heat, the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And the psalmist is rejoicing at this point. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. That rejoicing that comes in 6 and 7 is a result of God distressing this saint and bringing him to repentance and reliance on God. That's the way he works in our life. What do you rely on when you go through stressful times? What do you lean on do you believe that God is working all things, even the difficult things in your life, for your good, to call you closer to Him? I mean, prayer is an acknowledgement of need to God. When we pray, we're saying we, we, can, we cannot do anything on our own. We're confessing to God, we need you. And when you're faced with stress, that is the first place you need to go. And if you're going to do that effectively, you need to do it biblically. You need to know what God you're praying to. You need to know what God is like and what He has done to bring you out of the pit and confess that to Him and rejoice in that. Sometimes distress in our life, again, as I said earlier, isn't just a direct result of our sin, but of the sinful world and condition of the world around us. But it doesn't matter where it comes from. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how difficult it becomes, our God has not left us alone. He has promised 
a rescue in Christ. He has promised to preserve us in Christ. He has promised to sanctify us into the image of Christ. We are not abandoned. Jonah wasn't really abandoned either. He felt like he was abandoned because he hadn't confessed sin. But you'll notice at the end of this prayerful psalm, he confesses sin and he finds relief and rejoicing. And so it is with us. He had a change of disposition because his condition was distressed by sin in God's sovereignty. Look at Psalm 139. We see that God will use difficulties in our life, distress, the distress of sin even in our life, to point us back to His protection and His grace. Psalm 139.5. The psalmist here confesses that it is God who hems me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And this just shows us that even in the midst of our sin, God is with us. We can't escape his presence. And aren't you glad? Look what it says in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me like Jonah, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For... You formed my personal being, my soul, my emotions, my mental state. You formed my inward parts. That's what he's talking about. The word there is your heart, your internal organs that relates to your emotion. You know what I'm like. You know I need this kind of comfort. I need this promise of being hemmed in. I need this promise that you're with me in the darkness because I do sin and you sin. We all sin and struggle with this flesh. But knowing that God knows our condition and cares about us, we know that his hand is not just over us. It is guiding us here. It says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully created or made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious, how precious, the psalmist says, to me, And I'm sure Jonah was thinking this too. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. And if you've sinned against God this week, and you have, this should be your testimony. Oh God, now that you've exposed my sin, and you know my weakness, and you've made a way for me to be protected, you're guiding me. Nothing is being wasted in my life. Every day was appointed by you for a divine purpose, to transform me and conform me to the image of your Son. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. God thinks about you. Jonah finally got it. God was thinking about him. God heard him when he screamed. God answered him when he cried out. Jonah was being changed. 
under the distress of his sin by God's grace. And so are we as believers. I find this comforting to me. Maybe it's not comforting to anyone else, but it's comforting to me that I know whatever befalls me, if it's sin, it's a result of what I did. If it's mercy and grace, it's a result of what God has done. But even in my sin, I know that God will work it together for good and for His glory. That doesn't mean I go on sinning. It means I actually hate my sin even more. Jesus didn't come to set me free from sin so I could sin some more. He set me free from sin so I could serve Him willfully, thankfully, obediently. I've been given the Spirit of God. And that means that I am preserved. I am set apart, sanctified, set apart in holiness. And that He will keep that which He sets apart eternally. And so even when I fall in sin, He will bring it to my mind and turn me from it and turn me to Him. Go back with me to Jonah 2.2. The distress here that we see in Jonah, it exists for Jonah, that's true. It exists for us, I think that's true also. But it exists ultimately to point us to someone else who is distressed in our place, who is distressed because of our sin. Jonah's distress is only a shadow of the actual distress that Jesus felt when he experienced death in the belly of Sheol, in the grave. He experienced death there to ensure that we would never experience God's wrath. Jesus went into the grave and was separated, even on the cross, from his Father, so that we would be always united together with His Father in love, protected, preserved, guided, sanctified, never lost, always in our Father's hand because Jesus was willing to take our place and be separated for a time. See, Jesus was our perfect substitute in every way, not just in the fact that He suffered on the cross But He died the death that all men must die to fill up the wages of sin that we deserved. He filled up. He drank up the cup in our place. And He literally died on the cross and experienced death for us. And so when you read Jonah's experience, Jonah's cries and his grief is only an echo of the cry that Jesus screamed from the cross. Just pointing us to that. Look with me at Mark 15. Here is where the true scream of the damned takes place. The one who went into the abode of the dead for us. Jesus was made a curse for us. And pardon my language, but R.C. Sproul made it very clear. It is as if God looked at Jesus and saw us and said, God damn you. And he separated him from his love for a moment in time to bring us into His love eternally, to never be separated by our sin. Mark 15, 33. Here we hear the scream of the damned on the cross, the one who was damned for us, so that we would never receive this punishment for our sins. God had to deal with our sins. Our sins demanded that God would bring about justice. God would have His justice satisfied. 
And for his wrath to be satisfied, someone had to die for every sin that I've committed, every sin you've committed. And Jesus willfully said, I'll do it. I'll take their place. I will scream like Jonah, the true cry of the damned. I will scream and be placed in hell, the grave, for them. So they will never experience death, eternal death. 1533 says, hmm, there's, there's some irony here, is there not? And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness. Just like with Jonah. Darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus screamed. Like Jonah. Only this cry was truly a cry of abandonment. He cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Me! <laughs> Could you imagine the emphasis on me? The Holy One, the one in whom you are well pleased, the one who's been obedient from birth. I learned obedience to the suffering that I went through for your sake, for your name, for the good of your people. Now I am forsaken by you for a purpose. So they'll never be forsaken by you. His cry of distress in Mark 15 was serious. He didn't cry from a literal hell. He didn't go into hell and suffer under God's wrath. He didn't go into punishment in that sense. He suffered the wrath that God poured out on him on the cross and it crushed him. It killed him. His cry of distress was from the distress of sin that he took upon himself when he became God forsaken in our place. He bled to death internally. He suffocated in his own blood because that was the death we deserved. He was cursed on the cross so that we could be loved by God. Galatians 3 points that out. Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was God forsaken, so we would never be separated from God. Now, what I want you and I to get from this is this. That means we can call upon God at any time and He'll hear our cries because of the cry that Jesus screamed from the cross brought us into unity with God eternally. We have received His righteousness placed to our account. We are accepted in Christ. We are loved in Christ. We are beloved by God. That in itself should drive us to repentance. That is what keeps us from sin and from legalism, frankly. I can't do anything to please God. Jesus did it all for me. So I can't perform outward acts to please Him. I must rely on what he has done for me in spite of my sin, in spite of my inability. One of the things I I want us to always understand and keep in mind here is that the distress of our sin cost Jesus his life. And that cost, when it weighs on our minds, should lead us to thankful, grace-driven obedience and repentance. 
Rules cannot make you holy. The law could never make you holy. Only one who was perfectly righteous in our place can make us holy. And that's Jesus. And it's His holiness that's placed upon us. We need to remember, repentance does not save us. Repentance is the result of our Savior's work in us. It's the reaction of the regenerated heart. It's the response to God's work of mercy that was wrought in us through the blood of Christ. Jonah Jonah could call upon God with confidence because he knew that he was placed in a covenant relationship with his God. And we know that even more so because that covenant was ratified in the blood of Jesus who became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Go with me back to Jonah 2, verse 3, to see that this work of God, this merciful work of God, is bringing about a a true change in the heart of Jonah. His condition has changed now. He sees that he's a sinner. He sees that he needs to rely on God's mercy. And from that point, he begins to confess certain things about God's judgment. He no longer says, I'm abandoned. I'm actually here by your sovereign will. And one of the the great marks of repentance is this. When we begin to understand, we don't see the bad things happening to us and blame God for it. We see the things happening to us as a result of our sin and rejoice that God's using it to bring us back to repentance. And that's what happens here with Jonah. He sees not a a way to blame God for his situation. He is coming into alignment with God. He's going to say something in verse 3 that's going to confess that he sees that this discipline, this place of distress is ordained by God, and it's God's love to him that brought him here. Look at verse 3. Notice how he phrases this. When you think about it, first of all, who threw Jonah in the drink? The sailors did. The mariners, right? They threw him in. That's not what he's attributing his position and his condition to. He's attributing his condition to God's judgment over his sin and God's sovereign rule over his life. He doesn't try to find a way out of this. He recognizes God placed him here. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Notice all your waves and your billows passed over me. He is completely attributing his position and his condition back to God. God, you put me here. Now I have to rely on you to to get me out of here. I need you. And we need to recognize when we sin, we don't need to blame shift. We don't need to say, well, it's that woman that you gave me, like Adam said. We don't need to say, well, it's my boss. It's my friends. It's alcohol. It's whatever. No, you understand you're here because of your sin and God will turn your disposition around if you call upon him. If you confess that this is what you have done to redeem me, to bring repentance in me for my good and for your glory. What Jonah does or what God does rather through Jonah and in Jonah here is he strips him. Jonah cannot trust in anything that he had professed beforehand. He can't say that I can Call on God now because I'm a good Jew. No, I'm in disobedience. Your hand has put me under this water. I can't trust in my religion. I have no way to offer up literal sacrifices to you. So now what do I do? Oh, I have to trust 
call on you. See, this is a, an example, I think, here of sola fide in Jonah's life. It's faith alone that he calls upon. He trusts in God. He calls upon God to get him out of the situation. He turns to God for mercy, which is exactly what God wants him to recognize. Jonah, the great Hebrew prophet to Israel, needs mercy like pagans. In sin, there is no distinction between us and the non-religious. We both need the mercy of God. And Jonah confesses that God found him guilty, placed him here under the stress of sin so that he would turn from sin and appeal to God for mercy in his time of need. He knows that God will hear him based on what the Bible teaches us. He knows that God will hear him because now Jonah is finally broken and contrite. This is where repentance leads to. A brokenness over our sin, a bowing low before our God and a reliance upon him alone to get us out of this condition. Jonah's disposition is changed here. I think that's the first step of true repentance. And that is the first step, by the way, to true joy in the Christian's life. If you're living in unrepented sin, and you know it's sin, and you're not willing to deal with it, and you're feeling the distress of sin continually upon you, you're not feeling freedom and rejoicing. You can find release from that in calling on God in the midst of your sin. Listen, you still may be struggling with it. It may not be something you can turn immediately at that moment away from. It may be something that's entangled you like these weeds around Jonah's neck. It may take time. But there should be a continued brokenness because this sin cost Jesus everything on the cross to set me free and secure me in God's love. I think that's what God wants us to see this morning. And I think He wants us to think about where we turn to when we are under the distress of our sin. Religious people tend to turn toward outward rituals, outward external changes to look like they have turned from sin. They try to put on a mask. They try to hide their sin by pretending that they're holy outwardly. That won't cut it. God can see through it. And God will strip you of it, just as He did with Jonah. And eventually, legalism and religious activity will show what's truly down deep inside of you through hypocrisy and jealousy and misery. Those rotting bones will come forth. They'll be seen. And instead of hiding from sin through outward external looks and religious acts, we need to be like Jonah. It's one of those places I can tell you to be like Jonah. Call out to God. Confess that you need Him to clean you from the inside out. That you cannot be as holy as you appear to be. You know that that holiness comes from an inward change of heart that God loves, that God requires. And only God can clean us from the inside out and remove that decay and that death of legalism and depravity, self-righteousness. I don't think most of us here struggle with that, though. I think most of us here probably struggle with something else when it comes to how we handle the distress of our sin. I think most of us under the distress of our sin here, in our church anyway, I think, I could say we may not turn outward, we may turn too much inward. We may get into an unhealthy introspection where we are driven deep to look at our heart, which is good, 
But then we get there and we see that we're guilty and we see that we've sinned against God and then we're crippled by fear because we have fallen short and so we quit. I can't serve God. I've sinned this week. Repent. Find release. You've been forgiven. The guilt is removed. We're good at openly confessing our failures. But when we forget Christ's victory, we're just as much in danger as the legalists. We have to remember that too much introspection will lead to depression. Because it won't cause you to look out to Christ, the source of your redemption. If we keep focusing inwardly, we shouldn't forget that we have sinned. That's not what I'm saying. But the guilt of our sin has been removed. As far as the east is from the west. I have no sin guilt before a holy and righteous God because Jesus bore the guilt for me. He paid the price. God can't charge me for it. He won't. Jesus paid it all. Wallowing in our own self-pity and guilt over our sin will rob us of other things. It will rob us of effectiveness in ministry. It will rob us of joy. Listen, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him now and forever. You will not enjoy the grace of God if you're dwelling on your sin continually. Listen, we need to see our sin in light of our Savior's work, though. Always in light of our Savior's work. Our sin, guilt, should drive us to the cross of Christ where it was dealt with eternally and rejoice. That's where we're driven. Jonah was driven to God, his source of redemption. And he didn't hesitate to call on God. He didn't hesitate to call upon him to save him, though he had sinned against him because he relied on his rescuer. If Jonah was set in that fish and focused on his own sin and not turned to God, he would have rotted with the rest of the carcasses in that fish's belly. But God brought him there to turn him upward, not inward. Once he saw his sin, he immediately turned to his Redeemer. And we need to remember that as Christians. And if Jonah could learn that lesson before the cross of Christ, we should learn that lesson much better after the cross of Christ. We can look back to it and find that is our place of hope. That is our place of change. That is where our condition was transformed before our holy and righteous God. We are no longer considered sinners or offenders of God. We are considered redeemed, purchased by God, hidden in Christ eternally. And that's what we need to remember when we go under the distress of sin temporarily. It is to bring about a change in us that would reflect the work of Christ. I want to read a quote before I end regarding our change condition. I posted this this week on Facebook. Some of you saw it and responded to it immediately. And you should, because this is an amazing quote, full of truth. Listen, Christian, by the doing and dying of Jesus, you are accepted. That's it. This is not just a day of conversion, but throughout your Christian life. This is good news indeed. Therefore, when the chariot of guilt rolls in, and it will, don't run from it. Instead, hop aboard and give it directions. Tell it to drive on over to that hill called Calvary, where Jesus put an end to all your guilt and shame. Then sit there for a while, smiling and singing of the glory of Christ. That's where we need to go.
when we're like Jonah and we're weighed down by the distress of our sin, let God's perfect work in us bring us here to the cross of Christ. That sanctifying work brings Him glory because we turn from sin and we don't wallow in it, but we rejoice in the Savior who died for it to change us and promises to always hear us when we call. He will never leave us nor forsake us because of God's mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you love us. Um, That is not something we deserve. It is purely a work of your mercy and grace. And that came to us because Jesus was distressed for us. Jesus went to the grave for us. And Jesus rose victorious for us so that we know we can call upon you and be changed because you are changing us through the work of your Son. That should motivate our sanctification. That should drive our repentance. That should drive us to you in reliance. Lord, I love you and I pray that your word has its perfect work in our hearts and it brings forth much fruit that brings Jesus glory and makes us effective in our ministry and not weighed down by guilt and misery, but set free to rejoice in our forgiveness and knowing that we have your ear when we are distressed. We love you. We thank you for that grace and that mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.